Hey guys, welcome to Always Bet on Black. I'm your host, Paula Glover. Today I'm talking to Professor Robert Wilkinson. He's on the faculty at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where he focuses on negotiation and leadership. We had a great conversation where we talk about how the soft stuff is the hard stuff. Hope you enjoy this episode. I want to start actually just to learn a little bit about you. Um, and where you're from, and how you end up doing the work that you do around teaching leadership and negotiating skills, because I think it's really interesting. Um, So you earned your master's um, from Stanford and your bachelor's from MIT, both in, is it metallurgical? It it was material science and engineering, like the obvious degree you have to get if you're going to teach leadership, obviously. Right. So I'm curious as to how you went from that to this. It's a great question. Yeah. And it's funny how I talk to my students about this question all the time, because what happened was I, you know, went to study undergrad. I was pretty good at math. Um, And the advice back then, and even now, I think a lot of times is, you know, okay, well, what do you need to do to position yourself to be successful, get a good job? And everybody said, well, if you get a good engineering degree, it's not at that time, particularly, it's not will you get a job or not? It's of the many great job offers, which one will you choose? So I thought this is great, you know, and that was kind of true. And the same at Stanford with engineering. And I look back and I realize like nobody ever said to me, well, what do you believe in? Like what's fulfilling? What's a fulfilling life and career and meaning? And what do you want to look back and see that you contributed to? And uh, it was all about like, you know, success in a classic sense. And so I actually did get a job at Intel in Silicon Valley, you know, the chip maker uh, after Stanford, really great company. And if I was staying in technology, I would have stayed there. But I just looked around and I was like, you know, this isn't for me, this isn't inspiring me, this isn't feeling like meaningful to me. And separately, when I was an undergrad, I went to volunteer, I didn't even know anything about it before I even had my first lecture undergrad, I saw a thing in the orientation about community service. So I said, let me sign up. And I went and volunteered at a Red Cross shelter that gave out food for the homeless and other things like baby seats and stuff like that for Mm -hmm. people who are needy, right across from Fenway Park, actually, I could see the the green monster of Fenway Park as I was volunteering. And I didn't realize at that point, like that was the thing that changed for me. I was just like, wow, this is, I I can't believe I haven't done more in this space of helping people who are so vulnerable and so needy. Mm -hmm. So I made a commitment. I'm just going to keep volunteering undergrad, keep volunteering grad school, which, and I thought I'd be an engineer and just volunteer. But at Intel, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to have to make a big change here. I think I'm going to do the thing I was volunteering in and leave the engineering behind which nobody I knew said was a good idea. Family, friends, colleagues, nobody said, great idea, Rob. They said, I would just throw away this career. But I just decided that's what I'm gonna do. And then I started talking to everybody I knew about it and got advice and just thought about it. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna work to help people who are in need, where should I focus? And after a long story short, basically people living in countries that are suffering from poverty and human rights abuses and conflict, how much worse does it get than that? So let me work in that world. And that's what I decided to do. So I just started doing like aid work as a volunteer initially, and then it kind of became a professional. I started in Nicaragua right after I went straight from Northern California to Nicaragua, worked on um, engineering projects that were related to water supply because people had to walk long distances for water and and it wasn't sanitary, et cetera. So we built water systems for Sandinista and Contra communities. And it was really all about the conflict. It wasn't about the technical stuff. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I kept going. I worked in Laos and Southeast Asia for a year and a half. I worked in the UN peacekeeping mission in Angola for a couple of years. 
Um, that wasn't exciting enough, so I went to Rwanda for three years and worked with Oxfam, the nonprofit there. Um, just really getting into projects that had to do with people who were struggling in difficult circumstances where there was a lot of disagreement and conflict. And how do you be effective and be useful in those environments was the question that was constantly on my mind, which eventually led me to just thinking, well, who's good at this? Who's good leaders in these tough circumstances? And what do we know about that? And I just got really obsessed with reading everything I could and talking to everybody I could. And long and I moved back home to Boston, where I'm from originally, and uh, started teaching this stuff. And now here I am 12, 12 years later, teaching courses on leadership and negotiation and doing a lot of consulting still in this world of groups of people disagreeing in tough circumstances, trying to make progress. Um, not that that's relevant at all. Here we are in, uh, you know, just the day after the election in the US. I think this quest is going to continue because it's needed. So that's the long story in a nutshell. I'd love to ask you a couple questions about that, right? So this idea that, right, conflict and disagreement then kind of spills into these other needs. So you 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 started by saying you went to Nicaragua to kind of do this volunteer work around water for the Contras and the Sandinistas, but it clearly wasn't lost on you that there's a larger conflict that's going on around you that I would assume probably impacted in some way, right, the infrastructure and the ability for people to have water and, and the things that you were trying to provide as a volunteer. Have you seen in your career some sort of connection between those large conflicts and then these other needs um, and the ability to fulfill the needs, greater other needs of like regular people, the people um, in those particular situations, whether it's Rwanda, whether it's Nicaragua, is there a connection there? I mean, it's beyond, it's a great question, and it's beyond even a connection. I would say it was almost like the larger context was sort of everything. You know, it was a symptom. The lack of access to clean water was a symptom of the bigger conflict. So it was the, it was for me, it, it, which I didn't totally appreciate when I got there. I was in my 20s, you know, as a volunteer, but it started to become more and more obvious to me that whatever solution we could find, technically, we weren't off the hook until we could resolve the underlying broader context issues around conflict and leadership. And that's what got me into that sort of focus on, on that level, really. And think about it for a second. Like, you know, if you, in play, I've worked in other water projects as well. And, you know, so there's a conflict, two groups disagree over like access to a certain area, piece of land or something. Um, and there's not enough water. Let's imagine we built enough wells so everybody has plenty of water now. Is the problem solved that we all go back to one happy family? Well, I think we all can see no, because the behaviors that were happening throughout that whole period of time when you had scarcity and didn't have enough resources and water, people haven't forgotten that. Mm -hmm. So just because I have water now doesn't mean I don't still harbor a ton of resentment for the quote unquote other side for all those horrible things they did to me. And meanwhile, I can go to the other side and guess what they're going to say? The exact same thing. Like we were the innocent ones and they were the aggressors here. And one of the interesting things about disagreement and conflict is like, at some level, people want to know, well, who started it? Whose fault is it, right? And the answer often is, well, how far back do you want to go in time? Yeah. You know, I can find you an example a little earlier than your last example, and then we just go back and forth and debate historically who's the bigger kind of criminal here, which is not a productive conversation at all. So um, that became basically the lesson I took from it was, if we're not focusing on how leaders can sort of transcend these differences and get people what they need, then I feel like we're, everything else is sort of secondary. Yeah. So what that last thing that you just said, right, is probably in my mind, 
the most important thing when we talk about where we are in this country today, right? And, and whether or not we're talking about social justice issues, race equity in the workplace, the outcome of this election, whatever that is, right? I think there's always this overlay of whose fault is it? Um, or people feeling like we're doing this to blame someone, right? So oftentimes, you know, I'll say, if I'm talking about it, I'll say, this is nobody's fault. This is actually, it's, it's unproductive to, to try to figure out who's to blame for the situation we're in because we're just, we're still gonna be in the situation and we may as well just spend our energy trying to figure out how to get out of it than trying to figure out whose fault it is. Because as you said, all you're gonna do is point to another issue. Um, but what is it that we can be learning um, today about leadership and how we may even define leadership um, that can help us move forward. We can start with the big picture, which is as a country, and I'm not sure if that, you know, I know that's not going to be simple, but even as our organizations are trying to solve these problems, what can we learn from that? I think, yeah, this is so fundamental and so central to understanding, you know, what lead, the essence of leadership, what it's all about. So one of the first things we talk about is that people, many people blend in their mind the, the idea of a position of authority or someone who's senior, who's the head of the team or the head of the department or the head of the company or an elected politician, that they're the leader. You know, the CEO is the leader. Um, and then there's all these people who just sort of work for them. And we absolutely don't think of leadership that way. Leadership is not a position of authority. What is leadership? It's exerting influence on other people to bring them along with you to where you want to go. So the interesting thing about that is we're all exercising leadership all the time. I mean, if you literally can do it 100% by yourself and you don't need anyone else at all to get done what you're trying to do, okay, that's probably not leadership. That's individual sort of work product you're putting out. If you need anyone else, the second you need someone else to join you and go along with you and you want you need their cooperation support, now you're leading. That's how we think of it. So um, there's leaders throughout the whole organization from top to bottom. It's different than the, the boss or the head of the of the unit. That's not leadership. That's a position of authority. And some of those people even aren't actually exerting a whole lot of leadership. They're in that position, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily exerting a lot of leadership. So people at any level of an organization can have an influence uh, pulling from all these different leadership tools, which are kind of the, it's the content that we teach. So the implication for me of that, one of them is that, so your question about what do we do now in this country and, and where is the leadership? A lot of times people say, where's the leadership? There's no leadership. Well, guess what? There is leadership. We're all involved in it. We're all exerting influence on other people, you know? And we were just chatting earlier, Paula, you and I, about you know, the attitudes that we see in the mainstream media and in the, like on social media and people's kind of comments can be like, oh, the other side, they're all a bunch of fill in the blanks or, you know, uh, everyone, you know, all the Democrats, all the Republicans, all they care about is X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we may not realize it, but we're actually exerting some leadership in that kind of behavior where, and I'm not sure that I would say that's constructive leadership. Mm. Um, whereas someone else this morning, I was talking about an interview on the news where someone was saying, well, let's just, it was a person who was trying to answer the question, why is it that Donald Trump is getting so many votes right now when people were surprised, were not expecting it? Similar thing to what happened before. And this person is saying, well, and, and they were saying, you know, because clearly they, if they vote for Donald Trump, they believe in this, that, and the other. And the person said, well, let's just listen to the message they're sending. What do you think the message is? Let's try and understand the mind of the voter that's grappling with this choice and why they're making the choice they're making. That's a different kind of plea for our uh, 
focus of attention and our underlying attitude and mindset about how to deal with this than it is to say those guys on the other side are so horrible and they're evil and this that and the other and so that's exerting leadership as well encouraging people around you to have a a stance of kind of intellectual curiosity to figure out why people are doing what they're doing rather than the more typical thing which is we leap to a conclusion and we assert well this is this is why they did what they did. By the way, how do we know why they did what they did? We can't know. But we like to tell a story where, you know, it's pretty straightforward. There's a hero and there's a villain, right? And we all know who the hero is and we all know who the villain is in whatever circumstance. I'm the hero. They're the villain. That's And that's just not constructive mindset. Even when, by the way, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you have to agree with them. You can find it absolutely uh, you know, abhorrent what people stand for. The question is, what do we do to deal with that? And just pronouncing they're wrong turns out not to get you very far. So the first step is doing the work to think through and understand and try to understand where they're coming from in the way that they're going about it, which is a huge ask for a lot of people. But it's the right starting point. You know, Winston Churchill, one of my favorite quotes is he said, it takes great courage to stand up and speak. It takes even greater courage to sit down and listen. And in the middle of this election, I think a lot of us can now begin to understand how courageous that can actually be sometimes. Yeah. So is it that, because um, I think that's right, it's, it's hard to really listen in a way that allows you to fully understand another person's perspective. I think we all struggle with that. But I also wonder if, if we live in a day and time that it becomes increasingly more difficult because the people that we're getting the information from actually isn't, are, they aren't listening well either, right? So if you think about an election and we're talking about what the pollsters say or the exit polls or, you know, um, these individuals supported the president because they believed X or Y and these people um, supported, you know, Vice President Biden because they're socialists, whatever that narrative is that's out there, it's always coming from through somebody else's lens, right? It's through the lens of CNN or Fox or whoever it is that you're getting your information from. And I wonder, does that add an additional complexity in terms of the way that we process information? Um, because it seems like everyone still has a slant. I, th there's no question that there's always a slant from whatever source of information that you look at. So, um, and I do think it is increasingly difficult. The numbers of like, uh, for example, the hours that go up on YouTube every day and the number of uh, screens that people tend to pass through every day as they scroll through their news and social media, et cetera, has absolutely like skyrocketed in recent years. And I do think that that means we have to do more work to filter out that information um, and have a more critical lens on how we can trust that information. I mean, that is one of the big questions of our day, our time right now. So that is definitely true. At the very same time, I would also argue, though, that the fundamental dilemma is exactly the same. In other words, even before the rise of this sort of huge, this information age, it's pretty clear that innately, many of us just simply don't have that initial instinct to figure out and be curious why it is they have the opinion they have. Um, it's heightened, yes, by all these different sources, but at its core, that's really a challenge for a lot of us. So for example, we do a lot of, you know, I do tons of consulting with all sorts of organizations, nonprofit, government, private sector companies, um, all over the world and all sorts of different cultures and content. Context, And we do these different kinds of activities and, and sort of games and role plays and things like that, where we put people in situations where they are going to disagree. 
And then we asked them like, how do you, how do you manage that situation? Go for it. Let's just see, what are you going to do? And we record it and capture it and everything. And I would say in every time I've done that around the world in Asia, Latin America, Africa, Europe, you name it, uh, there's never been a room full of people where they, and this is over 20 years, maybe now I've never once had a group of people who predominantly start with, let me ask questions to understand where they're coming from. It just doesn't happen. We start by telling them what the truth is, you know, and it's like, it's so universal. I mean, I've, this has been in Laos, in Zimbabwe, in, you know, Peru, you name it. It's a way that we engage with people that is often about telling them why they're wrong and why we're right. And just think about it. Like, have you ever had, have you ever like really disagreed with someone? You say, well, look, let me tell you this. And in the end they turn around and say, oh, Paul, you know what? You're totally right. I'm totally wrong. Like that just doesn't happen, right? Not even in, not even in yeah. fictional stories that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So I do think there's something inherent about cultivating a mindset of first, let me just figure out where they're coming from. And this is so powerful because you still may disagree. You have a lot of work to do, but there's so many impacts of that. You know, number one, it signals that there's going to be a learning conversation here, not just a tennis match where you keep smacking the ball over the net and I make my point, you make your point. And then secondly, it's a relational move as well. I think people will engage with you differently if you start off by showing some willingness to understand their perspective. Thirdly, believe it or not, I sometimes say this to my students, I don't really care what fancy schools you've been to and whatever, like you may actually not know everything there is to know about this topic. There's a chance you could learn something. There's a chance they might actually share something that might make you think, oh, I didn't really think about it that way, right? Um, and then I think finally, you know, it's a, if you want someone to consider your perspective and even be open to changing their mind about something, which isn't the initial goal, but if you want to eventually have that chance, the best way to do that is demonstrate that you're willing to just really listen to what they have to say and you're willing to at least be open potentially to changing your view. That's the best way to get them to think about doing the same sort of thing. But most of us expect the other person to do the conceding first. And then if we like what they are saying, then maybe we'll open up it doesn't tend to work that well. So it's just really hard for human beings in general, I think. And especially, I think in this, in this current climate, I feel like it's more, as we all would, you know, I think agree, it's more polarized than ever, which means that people are more convinced than ever that they're right. And you know, what's interesting at, the, at, the, at Harvard, they have all these different schools. You probably know School of Engineering, School of Law, School of Medicine. We have a divinity school as well. And one of my colleagues likes to say, you know, sometimes he comes across colleagues or students who are so convinced that they have a lock on the truth that he's like, you know what? You should get a faculty position at the divinity school because I don't think you're gonna fit in here. Like if you know the truth of the universe, then you might be in the wrong place here. So I think that's, that's the struggle of our times right now in my, in my view, actually. So what is it about people that we certainly recognize that dynamic in, in others and don't necessarily recognize it in ourselves, right? And as I'm listening to you, I can think of experience where I've experienced that from somebody else, but logic tells me that I've also probably done that to somebody and don't recognize it that I have. But logic will tell me that I probably have done that. So how do we kind of untrain ourselves? I mean, you've said that perfectly. That's exactly right. Logically, we know we can't be, you know, it's like 90, you might have heard this, 93% of drivers in the U.S. rate themselves as above average drivers, right? Because we, we have a view of ourselves. It's one thing. And then, but factually, that's just impossible, right? Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of research about that kind of thing. You know, most teachers think they're above average. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have that kind of uh, internal bias. So we do have to kind of retrain ourselves. And one of the 
and there's a lot of great stuff out there. We teach courses on this. There's a lot of great books and, and sort of workshops and things. And the main um, challenge and task is to be intentional about how we choose to engage with people. So it requires us to sort of stop and take a, take a bit of stock of ourselves and where we are and what we're trying to achieve before we launch into our next sort of diatribe or our next sort of meeting or speech or one-on-one -on -one conversation. And that takes repeated constant reflection. And there's some really nice, so, so one, of the, one of the models that I've been teaching with is called the 4P leadership framework, um, which has four different aspects of how we have to think about our leadership challenges. Um, we can share the, the model in more detail for the listeners. Um, but the, the, there's basically four Ps, which is perception, the point we've been basically talking about, how we all perceive the same thing wildly differently. There's process, how do we manage engaging with groups and people? There's the, what I, the third P I call people with a human and emotional impact on people. So thinking about how they're feeling is something we skip over somehow in the professional world as if people don't have feelings somehow. And then the last one is projection, the messages we're sending explicitly, but almost more importantly, implicitly, we're implicitly sending messages all the time as leaders. And that's what people hear loud and clear sometimes. So just having, some, but there's other models out there too that are all really, I think, give you a framework to think about how do I slow down and systematically reflect on the way that I'm engaging with people to get better results. That's what it all comes down to. And, and the number one thing is just to recognize I've got to actually stop and think about the behaviors and attitudes I'm holding because that directly relates to the kinds of behaviors and attitudes you get back. You know, it sounds so obvious when you say it that way, but most of us don't, don't take any time to think about that. It's all everybody else. You know, I can, I, anyone you stop on the street can list you like terrible bosses they've had and terrible family members and terrible neighbors. And that's all, you know, we get it. But, you know, it's not entirely unrelated to the way that we behave and the way that we think. So having the discipline to systematically reflect on yourself. I mean, let me show you one example. There's a, there was a surgeon in the Boston area who was very effective in his field. Uh, one of the best in the world. And he had this kind of kind of reflection with some other colleagues. And he said, you know what, I should do better. And I'm going to have some people observe me in the operating room and write up notes and give me feedback. And he learned a whole bunch of things about how he didn't really listen to the people around him. Mm. He blocked their view from the way he was standing so they couldn't see the patient in, in the right way. And they changed a whole bunch of things and he got a better survival rate. One of the best in the world got better still. Just because, and his phrase became in the in the operating room, "Slow down, we're in a hurry." He'd keep saying that, "Slow down, we're in a hurry." Meaning, if we're gonna, this is life or death right here. If we're gonna get it right, we actually have to pause and be intentional and reflect on what we're doing before we take the next step. So that's why <laughs> the paper on the four people I was just talking about, I call it leading with intentionality. So you're being intentional with everything you do rather than just reacting which is a big ass. It's a lot, it's not easy to do. It's a lot to think about, but over time we systematically see that people just get better and better at what they're trying to achieve by being that thoughtful about their choices as a leader. So I think I want to use your four P's as an example of how perhaps our organizations, um, a lot of the, the folks who are listening in our companies of companies that they work for are trying to figure out what race equity work looks like for them and how they deal with these issues. And I think um, if we're, if you're able to maybe using those four P's as a framework, but before we do that, um, I think listening to you talk about kind of these leadership skills, what, what I find interesting is that certainly as I was coming through school and as you, as I was, you know, learning about what leadership was, and it was never really a formal class, I think you have this impression that a leader is really that strong person, that strong boss who can make really good decisions, 
fairly quickly um, and so on and so forth. And I would, I would suggest even if we think about those business titans, um, whoever they are that you describe, those are the things that we describe about them that make them these business titans. And yet the skills that you've described are certainly far more along the, self, the, the soft skills side of the equation. Um, and so have you, does that mean that actually those skills are really probably as important, if not more important, if you're gonna be a really effective leader, leader particularly in times where there's either transformation, disruption, et cetera. Um, but for those people who are interested in being a leader, how do they begin to exercise those types of muscles um, because they, and, and help people to understand that that does transfer into strength, right? Lots of leaders will say that my employees are the most important part of my business. And yet, if you talk to their employees, their employees will be like, that guy could not give a darn about me. You know, you've so hit the nail on the head. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. So we sometimes say it's those soft skills that are actually the hard skills. You know, it's, it's, it's really been a trend over the last several years. I'm not sure how many, I would say 15, 20, maybe, where this notion of what the heroic leader looks like is being challenged. You know, exactly what you said. People think it's this decisive, strong leader who comes in, saves the day, tells everybody what's, you know, starts taking names, tells everybody what to do. And we kind of like, get it all back on track and move forward into the sunset, you know? That's just not, uh, it's a myth that doesn't have any real basis in fact, first of all. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, what's really interesting is that the more this is being studied, the more research shows that it's simply not true. So one book you may have heard of, but one of the kind of biggest best-selling leadership books that came out a, a few years ago is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And um, in a nutshell, the book looked at that looked at thousands and thousands of companies and put these really strict criteria in place to see which were the most successful based on all kinds of different ways to look at it over a period of at least 15 years sustained, which usually is more than the tenure of any given CEO, beating their competitors, factoring in like, you know, industry changes. And 11 companies came out on top of that, those thousands. And they studied them in detail. And what was really unexpected was that the CEO of all 11 companies happened to have these similar traits, which were incredible humility, uh, incredible openness to understanding other people's perspectives. Uh, they were very far from like ego-driven uh, personality, you know, front page, new, like magazine C celebrity CEOs. They were not like that at all. Um, now they were very tough-minded and relentless on getting things done. And they had this very strong purpose, but their attitude about themselves was very much what we would think of of these soft skills. Um, which was kind of blew a lot of people's minds. And there was this interesting little point that he made, Jim Collins, that when they interviewed all of them, and they also interviewed competitor companies that didn't do so well. Mm -hmm. And what he talked about was the mirror versus the window. And what he meant was that the CEOs of the 11 companies kept talking about things like luck. They kept saying, we were really lucky, you know, we got lucky with this, we got lucky with that. Um, but when it came to performance, it was like, oh, the team was great, the employees, but they themselves, they were like, why do they keep talking about luck? And what it was is they don't take personal credit for things. They're always looking outside the window, let's say, mm -hmm. to see everything outside of them and try and understand it and see how they could best engage with that. But it wasn't themselves. The CEOs of the companies that didn't do nearly as well in the same industries, they talk about the mirror. Like if things get well, they're talking about themselves. It's like they're looking in the mirror and seeing themselves and like uh -huh. what I did and what I achieved. And then when things didn't go well, it was the market tanked or the regulations from the government came into place or something else to explain the failures, but the successes was them. And it was exactly the reverse for the successful CEOs where it was something else to explain the success, even luck. 
and then the failures they took on personally. So that's just one small example, but I could give you tons more where um, actually being successful as a leader often does require, at least to some extent, often a huge extent, all of these soft skills about seeing other people's perspectives and managing an inclusive process and worrying about how people are feeling about what's going on. And those implicit messages, it's funny you said that example because I just mentioned it, it's the implicit messages people listen to, right? Not the explicit ones as much. So he's, everyone says, of course, our employees are our biggest resource. You know, it's all about the people. Um, but if your behavior is inconsistent with that, that's what speaks louder, you know? So, so the, in a nutshell, yes, the answer is, these are essential elements for successful leaders that is often overlooked and now is becoming a widely recognized require. Like I just finished teaching last week, a required course on leadership at the Kennedy School at Harvard, which was exactly making this point. Like you first thing you do is start to look at what are the skills that are less obvious, but more important for leaders to try and tackle these really difficult public problems they're going to go into. What should we be focusing on? And it's more and more understood now, I think that the less obvious soft skills are things that we need to really kind of dive deep on if we're going to be effective. Does that then require that those of us who sit in organizations with leaders need to think about leaders, our own leaders differently, right? Because, you know, employee bases could say, I mean, I've worked in organizations where you'll see somebody who has those skills and describe them really with a negative perspective um, they're not really strong. They're not really um, assertive. You know, they're not take charge. Um, they listen to too many people. You know, it takes them too long. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe, you know, all of us have to rethink how we define those things that we think are really valuable in a leader in terms of their success, right? Whatever those outcomes are, successful outcomes are. And does that require, you know, more than just the leader to be thinking about it, but that the others, those people who work for them or engage with them should be thinking differently as well. You, you're, you, definitely. I think the answer is definitely yes. I think we've had, I've been working with a lot of organizations where that kind of cultural shift is going on and the top leadership is trying to project a message that is basically saying that like the standards you need to hold yourselves to and your bosses to are standards that are different than what we've thought about before. You know, our, and it links a little bit back to your previous question, which we're going to get to about race. But for example, do your direct supervisors, how inclusive are they in the way that they do things? You know, I think people don't even appreciate um, the little things about how they, you know, do you just send out an email and say, respond to me? Well, actually, who does that then put into a difficult position? Because you're asking someone who may have a concern to directly respond to the boss by email about them. Who's going to do that, right? right? Or do you say, you know, let's get everyone together and just like, who's got an idea? What are you asking them to do? You're asking them to raise their hand in front of everybody and just say, like, I have this concern. That cuts out a whole bunch of people who may have valuable information. So, for example, thinking about inclusive process management, which is one of the P's, can be what's seen more as a soft skill. But when the head of the company is saying, we want to see people exhibiting leaders, exhibiting these behaviors in our company, and that's what we're looking for. And we're going to ask you about it anonymously, and we're going to present that, and we're going to keep pushing on this, which is a couple of the companies I've been working with are saying that. You really, you're absolutely right. The, the, sh the shift is not just the senior people. The shift is the organizational culture. Yeah. And let me give you one example about that. I won't say the name of the company, but I worked with a few of the big oil companies and I've worked even longer with environmentalist groups and I've worked a lot with like, you know, 
World Wildlife Fund and others. And so that conversation is obviously a really difficult one between environmentalists and big oil, you can imagine. Um, and one of the CEOs of one of the major oil companies has been working with a group of us for a while. And one of the things they said that was so interesting was that that heavy emphasis we put on trying to see different perspectives, um, which allows them, and by the way, the same thing on the environmentalist side, they think, oh, they're all a bunch of, you know, you fill in the blank as well. So is both sides here, by the way. Um, but the, the CEO of the oil company said, you know, we finally realized we have to have a different perspective of how we engage on this. So um, they were saying, you know, we have to either, we have two choices. We either transform ourselves to become an energy company as opposed to an oil company. And we have a chance at least at a future or we just keep what we're doing what we're doing and we don't have a, we just really won't exist. I mean, the, you know, he said the stone age did not come to an end because we ran out of stones and that the oil industry is not going to come to an end just because we run out of oil. It'll be other factors. And so we have to get ahead of that and actually transform ourselves radically, which was pretty unusual for a CEO of an oil company to say, but that was not because they got better data and did more geological research. And it was about shifting a mindset about how are we going to engage with the world and people around us who have a lot of important things to say. So it's it's becoming more of a trend, but we still have a long way to go to kind of get that old fashioned notion out of people's minds about what the heroic leader looks like. So we should let's let's shift and talk about race and I'll share with you a, just an experience that I had um, that for me was kind of like, wow, this is this is good. You know, typically, I would say over the last seven years in my room, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, there's always you start with the business case for diversity um, and all the metrics and the McKinsey study and this study and da da da. And so just this summer, I was working with an organization and had an opportunity to meet another oil company, their CEO. We were talking about um, diversity work that they were about to undertake as an organization and race work that they had never done before. And this gentleman looked at me and he said, you know, I know the business case for diversity. I understand it. This is all great stuff, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but in this moment, what I've decided is that we should just be doing it because it's the right thing to do. And this is the right thing to do. And I thought, wow. And I said to him, I said, you know, I had been noodling that in my own head and asking myself that question as to why do we have to have a business case for doing the right thing, right? Why do we even have to go through the machinations of creating all of these reports and studies that demonstrate that having a diverse workforce is good for your business when you know that it's the right thing to do? And so to hear somebody kind of get there very organically on his own and say, I believe I have a moral obligation to do the right thing, and this is the right thing, and I actually don't need another reason, um, was telling. But so, you know, I wonder, is that a shift or is that just an extension of some other ideas? And I'd love to hear what you think about that. But then start to move also into like, how do you think about doing race equity work in our organizations and how we can apply those four Ps in helping our leaders do that work? I mean, two really important areas here. So the first one, you know, this has been a long-standing debate about any kind of diversity and inclusion and equity work. Uh, it probably first more started with the question of gender, uh, but it also is applied to other groups of basically on whatever dimension of difference you look at. And so um, in the sort of field, looking at the literature on this, the two big camps on explaining why this is important or what they would call um, intrinsic, which is the moral argument. It's intrinsically just the right thing to do. It makes sense versus the instrumentalist, which is like it's an instrument or a vehicle or a tool to achieve some other goal. So 
And you'll notice when you read people's annual reports or even reading in an email when people talk about this, which school of thought they're associated with, right? And more often than not, it's the instrumentalist, meaning this is an instrument to achieve something. So diversity will improve the bottom line. It'll improve our, let's say, shareholder satisfaction with being part of this company because they want to see it to, to represent what they think this industry should look like. Or, um, you know, we'll be more likely to get institutional investors and all these different arguments, right, which are inherently valid. I mean, I think that's not wrong. It's just that it shows that the risk with that school of thought, the downside is that the assumption they're in, in, in passing on is that, well, if we didn't have the metrics and we didn't have an argument about why it would help the bottom line and the long-term you know, in institutional investors, et cetera, et cetera, then you know, really we shouldn't bother doing it. You know, whether you realize it or not, you're basically making that argument. Like the, the reason this is worthy of considering, like having women on boards you know, has all these positive impacts, financially speaking, which has been kind of shown. But it's um, if you say, well, without that data, we shouldn't do it. Now you're going against the intrinsic argument. And the intrinsic people are saying, forget about the data. What kind of company do we want to be part of? What do we stand for? You know, I don't really care about the numbers. And so I think the best arguments have both, for example, um, with the work on women and boards, for example, there was a lot of really interesting research where unsurprisingly it was mostly men and most companies. Lots of work has been done to increase the percentage of women and other groups, but the studies were done on women that I'm thinking about. And what they found was that the mixed boards that were more gender balanced took into account a few different things. One was short-term versus long-term. The more balanced the, the board was, it shifted from very short-term to sort of balancing medium and long-term as well. The, another thing is that with more balanced boards, the consideration of the broader set of stakeholders was brought into discussion versus the narrower set of shareholders. Mm -hmm. And then a third thing was that decisions were taken, real decisions were taken in the room at the meetings. Whereas before, when it was a less diverse group of board members, there was other events happening, meetings, informal things, drinks, golf, you know, weekend outings, <laughs> you name it. And decisions were actually taken there. And that's not necessarily that they took the wrong decision. It's just the process about it was not transparent. So that's just one example of how, yes, it is better. Like it's, and if I, if you know all that, I think you should share that. I mean, that's a good argument to say, you know, we'll be better off as an organization, as a company, if we consider these factors, but just be careful if the way that you frame it is that because of those reasons, we should do this, what you're not saying, but the inverse of that is if we don't have the numbers, we shouldn't bother to do this. So we don't have right. to worry about it. So it's a really interesting debate. I do think there's a shift where it's like becoming almost less socially acceptable to even imply that that intrinsic argument isn't important. I think now, like, I do think that person genuinely made that shift. And I think that's a really good thing. I just want to make sure that people are very clear about the trade-offs they're making when they present certain arguments, because they may not realize that they're actually presenting a certain school of thought when they make those arguments. Yeah. 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 Um, and then as for race, you know, one of the things I, so, I mean, I have so much to say about this, but you know, just my background is so, you know, so I'm from the Boston area. My mom's Jamaican. My dad is English. So they're both working, you know, poor immigrants who came to the U.S. I'm a first generation American. And they met in the early 50s. So before the height of the civil rights movement, couldn't get married legally in most places. Um, they did get married eventually in 1955. And they moved to what was one of the areas at the time that was more um, open to integrated marriages. So about Massachusetts, that's why I'm from Boston. Um, and yet, though, the 
I mean, the struggles I had to go through, even to this day, I mean, I've got so many examples even to this day, but when, you know, my, the house I grew up in as a kid, my mom had to move in sight unseen because they'd gone to so many houses that they just took off the market the second my mom showed up, you know. Wow. Um, few, you know, the number of times as a kid, people would ring the bell and say, is a, you know, is a lady of the house home or something because they assumed she was a maid. Uh, you know, she went fundraising in our neighborhood and the, she, the first time she did it, like a year after they moved in, the, the police were called because there was a, and my dad drove her around just because he was worried. They were both worried. And there was the getaway car was outside of the house and the woman was trying to break in and the police came. She was fundraising for cancer, you know. So this has been just part of my life and thinking about the story in the States as well as my own family is an ever present. And to this day, it's still a part of my life. You know, I, I, I walked into an office at Harvard not that long ago and somebody said, oh, maintenance is here. The equipment's in the back of the room. And uh one person recognized me. They said, that's Professor Wilkinson. What are you talking about? Um, but it's part of, you know, my daily experience. I do think, though, that the four Ps in my mind matter hugely, particularly like that first one of perception. There are times where people do stupid things and make mistakes that's not driven by racism. Right. And I think it's important to distinguish that. Um, it's very easy to get into an all or nothing, black or white, no pun intended, sort of statements of like, you know, oh, everyone in that area is like this. Not helpful. Um, but it's a big ask when you're the one who's on the receiving end of racist. There is real racism, of course. And so when you're on the receiving end of real racism, it's pretty tough to feel like, OK, so it's my job to do the work to sort out what is and isn't racism. Well, you know what? Yeah, the answer is yes. Like, actually, if you want to have a purpose filled, fulfilling career in life, then that's the work that comes along with it, unfortunately, I think. Um, and then, you know, I talked a little bit about process choices and how they exclude people and include people. Let's have drinks after work. Who does that include? Who does that exclude? Right. Um, we're going to go out and see a movie. Well, what movie? You know, if you pick a certain type of movie or like, you know, do an event that has very strong cultural associations to them and you're including or excluding all kinds of people. So, you know, I think that and then the people, the human emotion, I think only now this summer has been remarkable for me to watch the extent to which, let's just say, black and brown BIPOC people have been, the effort's been made to understand how they feel about the experience of living in the US as a person of color. Has I've just never really quite seen that level of discourse, which is encouraging, a little bit frustrating. Some of my colleagues are like, are you kidding me? Like, now you get it? Like, it's been a while. We, it's like, we invented, I know, we invented a whole genre of music about this called the blues. So yeah. it's like, you know, you didn't get it until now. But hey, you know, the conversation is shifting. I think that's a good thing. I think that emotional impact on both, on all sides is pretty notable. And then I think now is where we get to the push comes to shove, the projection part, like that you could say all the right things, but the actual behavior is what people are going to look and that, look at. And that's what sends the real message about what you think. So right. I've been using this framework in a lot of the discussions, and I think it's going to be slow and painful in a lot of ways, um, but necessary. And I think we have an opportunity. So I guess yeah. that's sort of where I'm cautiously, I wouldn't even go quite so far as to say cautiously optimistic, but I'm very pleased that we have an opening to sort of dive into this conversation in a more structured and meaningful way than we have in a while. Yeah. So there are two things that you you said that I really want to delve into, um, and I will tell you I have this summer. I think to your point that we it, it certainly feels as if we're heard more as Black people, um, but I have definitely struggled with my own level of cynicism. So I think I can recall the first time someone 
White said to me this summer, I recognize my privilege. And I was so glad we weren't on a Zoom call because I know they would have seen me roll my eyes. Because I was just like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So who gave you the book that told you all the phrases that you're supposed to use to kind of de-escalate whatever you think the situation is going to be? And it took me a while to kind of really settle with the idea that for a lot of people who say that they actually really mean it. And I have not had the, I did not have the ability to process that in the way that they intended it. You know, I was just like, well, I was going to ask okay. you, Paula, then, so why the eye roll? And the eye roll, it sounds like what you're saying is... I just didn't believe it. Heard this too many times. And, yeah, I just and, and didn't believe it. it. I had never thought I would ever hear it. And I just did not believe it, right? It's kind of like when someone says, I hear you. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like... Or are you preempting by telling me that you hear me? And I know that that's me. Like, I, I can I can acknowledge that, that that's some of how my that's how I've been processing. And as time has gone on, I've been far more open to like, okay, like, I get it. I think you understand what you're saying when you say I recognize my privilege. My me, my me reaction, I think, of the rolling eyes is like, really? Tell me about that. Tell me about what you mean. What do you mean by that when mm, you say that mm, to me? Do you, do you, you. know what that means? Um, and now I'm kind of like, All right, you know what? But I think the first thing you said, which is really, when you talk about even us, right, as BIPOC, as Black and Brown people, um, there is work that we're going to have to do and probably extend ourselves in such a way that we actually don't want to. And I, I was on a webinar yesterday where it came up and I um, had to share that, like, I totally get when people, you know, when someone says, like, I don't feel like doing this work for you, company. Like, this is your job. And why should I start the ERG? Why do I have to help you do this? Why can't you do it? And my point in that conversation was to say to leaders, uh, recognize that that happens and you need to be okay with that. That you can't just expect that your people of color in your company, now that you're on board, like that they wanna help you work through it. But I want you to talk about, so what are the things that I think if we're going to be productive, we should expect to have to do and maybe even kind of right size our way, gave the strength, whatever we need to be able to help. Yeah, so two, there's two different kind of uh, arenas of, of discussion here you've opened up here. So the, 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 and let me start with that last one here. So, you know, the, the, the work that we have to do as people of color, I would say, I do want to be clear about one thing, which is that there is, it's legitimate to say that we can't just put the work, all the work back on the people of color. Like that's how, Outrageous, I think, you know, and I've, I've had that experience many times in my working life before teaching where I was like um, raised an issue. I'm sure you've had this so many times, too. You raise an issue and people are like, yeah, good point, Rob. You should, you know, run with that. You should do, you know, definitely if you want to start a committee, if you want to, like, get a working group together, like we totally will not stand in your way. That that's absolutely not what I'm talking about here, because that just puts it all right back on me. Like it's my issue. And I had to get comfortable saying, well, it's not my issue. It's the company's issue. And I think. Um, I'd like to see what your plans are, not my plans. So right. I think there's there's definitely valid uh, boundaries to set about putting all the work back on people of color, for sure, on questions of race. Similar for other things too, um, whether it's disability, sexual orientation, women, you name it. Um, uh, you know, we've had, the, you know, it's, it's great to have these groups. I think they can be really supportive for each other and that sort of thing, you know, like um, working groups and whatever. But that's not structural change from the organizational level. And that work has to be done by by everybody, including and especially led by people at the top. 
At the same time, though, which is really the hard part, it doesn't mean that we're totally off the hook and we should just say, look, you guys figure that out. Uh, we told you the problem, you figure it out. Because if you're not part of the solution, then even with the most well-meaning people, the outcome may end up not getting you what you want, maybe worse, actually. So in some ways, yeah, we do want to kind of be involved in that work. But there's also a personal level of work required that you just sort of explained really nicely with that example, which is like, it's understandable what you would roll your eyes. You're like, oh gosh, here we go again. I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. Well, it may be that there are some changes and that means that we have to do some work to distinguish between sort of genuine versus phony um, lip service to these issues that we care about. So there's a lesson here, I think, for both of these questions about like, you know, how organizations deal with it. And then also when you're in dealing with individuals and the lack of sincerity that I think you were kind of hinting at sometimes that you felt and me too. So when someone says, for example, I hear you and you don't really believe it, one of the big takeaways that's embedded in this whole 4P framework I've been talking about is the, the, the idea of authenticity. And what we mean when we say authentic, authenticity is that the internal story you're telling yourself about who you are and what you believe in is not exactly the same, but pretty close to the external story that you're projecting to people around you all the time. You know, so when people notice that in politicians, they complain about it or inauthentic leaders, you know, the second that you're in a meeting or in a discussion and someone's like, okay, look, we all agree here, A, B, and C. When we leave here, though, what we have to tell everybody is X, Y, and Z. When you're in that realm, all of a sudden, you're, you know, this, I'm not saying you can't protect confidentiality. And I'll, of course, you know, you can't just say everything all the time. But the second you're crafting two different stories to present a certain image, now you're moving into the realm of inauthenticity. And when people say, oh yeah, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. They've learned to say that phrase, but the difference between someone who says it and means it is that the one who means it, we give off signals in all sorts of different ways to people about how serious we are about something. And what we, one piece of advice that a colleague of mine has offered is that when you're listening to someone especially if they disagree with you on something, if you can do some work to search in what they're saying for any element of merit, some value, some, even if it's 1%, that you're like, you know, that part, I kind of, that makes sense to me, I get that. So there's three steps to listening really well. So number one, looking genuinely for any element of what they're talking about that you can get behind, that you agree with. Um, then the second thing is doing genuine inquiry, like really asking more to understand it better. Um, now, by the way, that's showing your authenticity, but the idea is hopefully you'll be getting authenticity from them. And then thirdly, you have to transmit back to them that point of merit that you found in their, in their whatever argument they're making. And that last point is something that is so small, but we skip over. And without doing that, you don't close the loop, actually, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so if I were, I'm thinking now, for example, that colleague that said to you, I now recognize my privilege. I guess maybe they said my white privilege, let's say. Um, if I were that person or giving them advice, I would say, you know, that alone doesn't show authenticity. What I would want to do is try to share a little bit more about what I'd learned from you or others and what was had merit that I never thought about before, um, how you've worked hard to ask more questions to learn and understand. And then you're transmitting back. Like now I understand that when I do X, or when people say Y, the impact it might have on other people is like, this, that, and the other, and it's really woken me up to this idea of privilege. It's pretty hard after all of that to say this person's just be you know, if, if you can BS all of that all the time, then I don't know. I've not, not met that person yet. So I think that that authenticity, that 
letting go a little bit of the fear of vulnerability mm -hmm. is at the heart of it. And I think it's a big, you know, we have to remember what we're asking people to do if they're saying I'm recognizing my privilege and you want them to talk more about it. We're actually asking them to share some pretty powerful personal, in some cases, maybe even failures or things they have some shame around. I think it's it's not nothing, you know, to have them in a workplace to sort of open up about that. Yeah. So I think it's a it is a two way street. It isn't fair to dump all the quote unquote work on the people of color, but at the same time, we can't wash our hands of it. If we care about getting an outcome that we believe in, we actually have to play our parts to make it so that people can be authentic about these issues. And if we shut them down the second they're authentic, then you know we're not going to get anywhere. So it's a really delicate balance, all rooted in the idea that um, somewhere in between that all or nothing response that we feel. In fact, you were sharing with me a story about how, you know, at some point you're like, I'm done with this and I'm either going to leave or you guys can make these changes. And that's a normal response to have like, you know, one or the other. In that middle space is where the magic happens, though, actually. I think that's mm -hmm. where real growth and learning and transcendence happens is in that middle space of like not saying it, forget it, I'm not gonna have this conversation or just saying this is how it is, but something in the middle, which is an exploration of learning, that's that's where the magic happens. It's a tough space to hold on something so emotionally charged like race, but that's where we have to be, unfortunately, or fortunately, that's where we are, I think. So do you think that means that we all have to, well, we're both meeting in the middle, right? So if I'm having this conversation with a colleague, I have to be willing to kind of go into that space of vulnerability and be in the middle, but they also have to, in some way, do the same for us to really kind of trust each other. Would, would you say that's accurate? Let, well, let me clarify one really important point about yeah. that, because I like the, the sentiment behind it. And I would say the idea that, yeah, both sides have to show some vulnerability. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, the best way to get them to, to open up about something that they had to reconsider in their lives is for us to show that we're willing to open up about something we have to reconsider in our lives. You know, otherwise, we wait for them to do it first. And then we decide whether we're going to open up. It just won't happen. Right. Um, now, there is a phrase you use that I just want to touch on, which is meeting in the middle. And the one caveat I would put about that is almost everything I've been talking about is um, about the way we go about handling the issue as opposed to the substance of the issue. So on the substance, I am not talking about meeting in the middle. Like, in other words, I don't, I'm not saying that anyone should have to feel like they have to compromise their values, what they stand for, like concede on points of principle is not what I mean for meeting in the middle. In terms of opening up and showing some vulnerability, which leads to authenticity, which can lead to a real conversation, that I think makes a lot of sense. So meeting in the middle in the sense of process, yes, but not necessarily on the, on the point of substance. So, so think about some of the most, who do you admire the most in history? Like, I don't know, picture Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or whatever. Um, they are not, or Gandhi with India and the UK, like controlling them. They were not compromising on their principles at all. About, so they wouldn't meet on the middle about apartheid or whatever. Um, but they would meet and did meet in the middle on how are we going to go about this? You know, we're willing to go to a place that's very uncomfortable for us and invite you to join us and see if we can find a way to resolve this, that takes some real courage. Um, so for example, when Nelson Mandela, who was in prison, decided to open up discussions with F.W. de Klerk, the, you know, the head of uh, South Africa, the president who was a point blank white supremacist uh, apartheid supporter. 
some people criticized him for doing that. Now, he, Mandela didn't concede on his points of substance, but he did. He did. So he wrote actually in his autobiography, Nelson Mandela, he said sometimes something like I'm not going to get exactly right, but basically something like um, sometimes the shepherd has to move out in front of the herd and take a risk and maybe fall down the valley, you know, fall down like a, a, a crevasse in the valley. But that's the risk you take as leadership. Um, and then one of my colleagues has written about this and he said, you know, well, Mandela might have these beautiful metaphors of fields and flocks of sheep, but he said, I, what I think of you're on the edge of a cliff and there's somebody on the other side of the cliff and you throw a rope and hope that they'll catch it. And if they don't, you're going to fall down the cliff. Like that is the more accurate analogy of what yeah. that took. That's leadership and courage at the extreme. But it meant that he had to put himself in a vulnerable position in order to allow the clerk to be put in a vulnerable position which allowed them to find a solution. So not meeting in the middle on substance, but certainly, and in fact, the final quote I'll just say on the point about this is Mandela said something I thought was remarkable. He said about de Klerk, he said, the thing about him is I need him. My biggest nightmare is I wake up in the morning and he's not there. That's my number one nightmare because I need him. I need him to get to where we need to be as a nation and as a people. Whether I like him or not is irrelevant. I need him. And to me, I feel like that's the situation we're in now. We need to work with each other because this is who we have in our society to work with. Whether we like them or not is sort of irrelevant, but we need them because we need to work together to figure this out. And when I remember reading him thinking that way, I thought, wow, that is a take on this conflict that I never would have brought myself to hold, I don't think, on my own. But that's where, again, where the magic lies, in my view. So... I love the way that you, you're talking about this and describing it. And I, I guess the question I would have, because you said, you know, none of these gentlemen um, had to give up their principles. And so I wonder if we find ourselves kind of in this, in this world where, where we have such great disagreement because we have mixed up what our principles are with what we think the tactics are or the, right, that we mix those two things up and that we haven't been able to agree on our principles. Right. And I think about politics in that way, because I think one could say, and I think very honestly, that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you believe that we should have a healthy economy. And that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you believe that we all should have access to health care. But the difference really is how we think that's going to happen. Right. Our politics then determine what we think the right response is to solving those particular problems. And we have somehow gotten ourselves into a situation where because we don't like the tactic that they're suggesting to solve the problem, i.e. Medicare for all, we made that a, we've made that something different. We, we talked about it as a principle, right, as a, a personal stand, as opposed to like, this is just a tactic, right, that um, I believe that private insurance is the way to go. That doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think you should have access to health care. It just means that I think the way you're solving the problem is maybe different than Medicare for all, for example. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about, it, it, are we mixing those things up in such a way, um, mixing up those definitions in such a way that it's very hard for us now then to find areas where we have commonality? Absolutely. I think blending the tactics with the principles is a huge mistake that we see happen again and again and again. Um, and they're very, very different things. In fact, some of the climate change discussions I'm involved in have to do with recognizing that, well, asking what are we going to focus our attention on? Like, I think most 
people on all sides of that debate want the earth to continue to exist in a way that is habitable for human beings. That's pretty undebated. Um, and whether one wants to say, well, is it mainly because of this cause? Is it like deforestation or is it transport or whatever? We can debate that. Um, is it, and, and even if someone, it's a smaller community of people, but you know, questions human activities causing emissions that lead to climate change. Um, there is, I've seen the mistake where people feel like I've got to get them to acknowledge that it's human behavior that's causing this problem. And we're going to have that debate and I'm going to throw all the evidence at you to prove it to you. And the question is, is that, is that a focus on that kind of tactic going to help us get where we want? Like that's not, that may be the right thing to do, but in some cases that's actually just a red herring that's putting us on, we're switch tracked into a whole nother discussion, which isn't going to help us. So really having that um, intellectual discipline to keep focused on the conversation you really want to be having uh, is another key aspect of leadership. A second thing I would just add to that, which is that I sometimes think that people feel like we shouldn't disagree. Like it's a problem if there's conflict. You know, I don't mean violent conflict, but I mean, you know, nonviolent conflict and disagreement. It's so inherent to any process that it's almost like, like people say, and I bet you hear this with your, you know, with your Abe clients and colleagues and things like people will say, well, hey, we're all on the same team here or we're all working for the same company, right? We all have the same goal. And what they often really mean is you're not agreeing with me. So if you keep pushing it this way, then we're going to have to say that you're not on board. You're not a team player. Yeah. You don't really believe in the company, right? You don't believe in the values and the mission statement. That's what they're really saying when they say we're all on the same team, right? Um, which is why aren't you being a team player, which means shut up and do what I'm saying or agree with me. Right. So, because like that's wrong or bad. One of the analogies my... Um, I read about was this, like imagine a football game. And if you're not into sports, it doesn't matter. But let's imagine there's one second left on the clock and you, the coach thinks we should run the ball and the assistant coach thinks we should throw the ball. And they're debating this and debating it. The, you know, do they both have the same goal and are they on the same team? And do they both really want to win? Yes, of course yeah. they do, right? And they're not enemies, but there's still inevitably going to be massive disagreement about the next step forward. And that's to be expected and accepted and embraced. Like, I think that's step number one is almost like, don't think there's somehow a huge failure because we're disagreeing on the way to go about this, you know? One of the case studies that we use in my course um, on leadership is Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. Really a remarkable story of a woman who's been working in the front lines in communities all over the country, working in Selma and amongst other places, um, to help at-risk youth in lots of different ways. And she ended up becoming very focused specifically on the question of helping young, particularly black and brown girls who are suffering, who are survivors of sexual assault. And what led to a really, it's a really remarkable story. And in fact, she used to do these workshops and there were these young women in the workshops and it, it came up so much, this topic that she decided at the end of this one workshop, there's maybe 40 people there, they fill in an evaluation form at the end to say, what did you think? What did you like? What should we change? And she said, you know, another thing we can do is if you, and they collect them and put them in an envelope so no one can see them. She said, you can fill in the evaluation form, or if you want to, you could just write me too. Um, and so they said, okay, she handed them out, went back to the hotel room with her colleague and they dumped the envelope out on the table. And it was just like across the board, me too. And she thought, wow, this is, we are, we are hitting a major issue here. There's a lot of work to be done. And some of them wrote their names, which she said, now that's just, that's a plea for help. Um, and so she said that it, it kind of became her calling at that point. Yeah. And what was so fascinating as we look into the story is among other things is that she faced a lot of conflict as well, including mothers of those very same girls 
who were saying who love their love their daughters but they're saying we don't need this in our community we don't want to shine the spotlight we have enough problems to deal with but can you imagine like so you couldn't get closer like it's not always the other side republicans democrats i've talked about you know apartheid in south africa and like right. it gets bad yeah i mean it really we have some major conflicts but when you're it's your own community she said these are my people i grew up here i love these people and there's that level of conflict and disagreement amongst the closest people that to me signals it's always going to be there yeah. you're not going to be off the hook you can't just think well once we convince everybody we'll all agree that's not human beings actually so we have to accept and embrace and recognize that this conflict of opinions on how we go about it is always going to be there. So if you don't see that as your job as a leader, then I think it's a misunderstanding that once we resolve these disagreements, I can get back to my job now and actually start leading. Guess what? <laughs> the first part, that's that's the job. That is leading. Yeah, right? that is leading. Exactly. I have to say I this, I think it's the perfect place. <laughs> no, this is just the perfect place to stop. I want to thank you so much. Um, yeah. I could really have this conversation for the rest of the day. Um, but I, you've given me, and I, I hope I, the folks who've been listening, a lot to think about, um, a lot to consider. I'm going to encourage everyone, um, if you have not, please go back to the very first webinar, which is called Leadership in Crisis, um, where we are talking with Professor Wilkinson about his four Ps. I think it's really impactful, great stuff to listen to. Um, and while we taped it thinking about the crisis was the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually had no idea we were going to have uh, so much material that this it would apply to. Um, but thank you so much, Professor Wilkinson, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's wonderful to talk with you, Paula. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you're doing this podcast series, Always Bet on Black. I think it's just what we need. And I'm delighted to spend a little time chatting with you about it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Professor Robert Wilkinson. For the rest of our Always Bet on Black episodes, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And for all things Abe, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And check us out online at www.aabe.org. Next week, we're going to be talking with Timothy Allen Simon, principal at TAS Strategies. And I'm excited to share that conversation with you. And remember, always bet on Black. I had a tendency to lean more towards the economic development as opposed to the more you know, social welfare safety net, which I now believe in strongly, but I've always had a strong commitment in the belief that the less we as you know, black folks and all folks depend on government, probably the best you are. You know, but then you get older and you realize, well, if you're a defense contractor, okay. <laughs> or if you're a banker that deals in treasury bonds, you, know, you have a major dependence on government. So you grow old and wise and you move from that zealot position to more or less uh, understanding your surroundings better. It's like being in a, a plane on a tarmac, and this happens often in San Francisco, and the fog lifts right before your eyes. And now, as a man we just lost, Johnny Nash, recently sang and Bob Marley wrote, I can see clearly now, yeah. you know? And so that's what happens with age. You begin to see things more clearly than you had often as a child.